Welcome to a special in between episode where we go behind the scenes at Nexus PMG. Over the next few weeks, in celebration of our seven year anniversary, we'll be releasing content, both audio and written, that gives an insight into who we are as a company. We're launching with a book club session we recorded earlier this year, during which our founders and a few employees engaged in a discussion about artificial intelligence and its implications on society. And now, Onto the episode. You want to go first? You want to give a bit of the background on Alec Ross, and then I'll talk a little bit sure. about chapters, and you can jump in whenever. Because I think so. I actually kind of already had this book in my backlog, and then we we kicked off that had this idea of hey, let's do this book club, and you get to read what you want. And the first topic was this: hey, technology or the future? What does the future landscape of business look like? And I was actually going to read this book in Q4, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to hold off. What originally interested me about this book was the author, Alec Ross, and so I don't know how much you know. You probably know I'm a bit of a political junkie. I enjoy politics, um, and one of the, I guess, more impressive things about the Obama campaign was how they, they were one of the first ones to really use technology, both social, and they actually used quite a bit of data analytics, and I know Trump campaign here recently with um what was that company? Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica really took that to another level. But Alec Ross was um, on that OA campaign and was part of that team that um, and, and he didn't actually implement, but he was part of that team. He actually started as a venture capitalist, came out of tech, Silicon Valley background, got involved into politics. And then after Obama won and um, Hillary Clinton became a secretary of state, he became, I should have it here, in 2009, April 2009. Ross joined the State Department as the Senior Advisor on Innovation. But one of the things that I knew a little bit about just being a political junkie is part of what that State Department was focused on was trying to take the idea, the vision of like Silicon Valley and trying to repeat, not repeat it, but look how we are creating jobs and technology and then trying to bring that, that background and those ideas into different, different governments and just kind of help them and and so they, it's a really, what I thought was interesting about the book is, is it, it, it's always a perspective as like a tech VC, but there's this element of the always interjects in each one of these and in, in intersection of just the, the global vision, which I thought was going to be different and interesting. And when we talk about Nexus and the future of work, and I thought that intersection could get really interesting because whether you not like, like it or not, everything is going more global, right? That's going to be a big element of probably how I approach the book and the way I'll speak to the book. But with that, maybe I'll hand it over to Paul since we read the same one, we'll just play off of each other. Yeah, and we can, so there's, there's basically six chapters in this book and they're, they're focused on, I think, four of the key industries. And then, I mean, let me just go through them. There's robotics, uh, genomics, codification of money, um, the weaponization of code, um, and then surrounding that is data and it's important in industries and um, and everything, those previous four, and then there's ge geography of future markets, um, which kind of wraps everything up as well, along with data and how it bundles everything into a nice package. So the easiest way to I think approach this is the four um, topics, and then we can talk about, we, we will naturally talk about how data and geography of those markets plays into each topic anyway. And I, I wanted to touch on the conclusion at the end from, from Alec Ross, who, it was kind of a short conclusion, and it's, it kind of layers in a human element to everything, and uh, I think it's a really powerful ending to the book as well. So, I mean, on the on the robotic side, I, 
he did a good job of splitting it up into residential and kind of consumer robotics as well as industrial robotics. So there's there's very different markets. There's five big players it's like China, the US, Germany, South Korea, Japan. Japan are the are the five industry leaders in the in the robotics market. And Germany, for example, is focusing on the um, the industrial side of robotics as well as the US and the, the Chinese and the Asians are focusing on um, the the residential and the consumer robotics side of things. And it's, it's things like elderly care, and you can see why they're doing it, because they've got an aging population. And we've, we've been known for 10, 15 years now that Japan's got this aging population where um, elderly care is now one of the uh, booming industries in Japan. And, um, elderly people now uh, outnumber younger people and things like that. So well, in, in, it was China that had the one baby rule, right? So there, this generation is referred to as the, you guys under 41. Four grandparents, two parents, one child, right? One child. Yeah, and so, and in, in our just Asian culture in general, you know, children taking care of their parents is a big part of it. We don't put our parents in home, so I'll let you kind of pick yeah, up no, on that. Was, I, that was an important point that hit home to me. It's a good point as well because even today, in like 2017 or 2016 or 2017, well, the average child had a number of children, uh, even now after the one child rule, is 1.4. So they still have lower lower birth rates, and that adds to that Asian population. So. The focus on robotics in Asia is for carers um, and, and basically robots that can help the elderly um, do house chores, do look after old people, basically. So that was the real focus and the, the booming side of the of the Asian robotics industry. Um, I don't want to add anything. To yeah, that. I mean, the, the one kind of note that I took that I thought was interesting, this comes back to kind of my play on just the, the kind of the, the software side, the geopolitics side of it, but you know, one, I think the one correlation he, met, he made and the thing that was kind of interesting is um, that part of the world views everything as having a soul, which I thought was kind of an interesting take on it versus like in the West and Europe, you know, it, robots and machines are, are purely for utility. And so the adoption of home care robots that you know, effectively, you know, AI, and I'm sure someone this is going to talk about you know, like where are robots in the future in terms of like interacting with humans and, and true AI. Um, there, the, the comment I think he made that really stuck on me is like that, that idea of everything having a soul will naturally let like the, the Southeast Asia market adopt robotics faster than probably we would in, in the West because it's more of like a utility, you know, I robot vacuums my floor. It, it, I don't really care about it if I kick it, right? Like, and so I thought that was an interesting observation and having spent some time in, in korea with one of our projects i mean i can kind of see how you know there, there is that connection to technology there that's different is there any discussion around like how robotics or even in those industries are they seeing it as like complementary to job growth or so, are they seeing it as no like, that's the industrial side okay <laughs> yeah so on, the, on the residential there's residential there's, sorry it's key to residential yeah. like it's construction it's consumer versus industrial so on the industrial side the overarching message is a robot is going to take a job. Period. Yep. It is he said, but that's it's already happened. Like he's, a, he's I think he's bank I think bank bank tellers were replaced. Yeah. Asia travel agents were replaced. Blue collar workers Checking coal were replaced by kiosks. So it's yeah. already happened in our lifetimes. It's happened in the generation before us last time. Mm -hmm. But what's going to happen is that those those robots that do take take those jobs. They're also going to need to be programmed. They're also going to need to be, need to be supported with human decision making. So the the role of a truck driver will just change to be a controller of ten trucks. So you'll control how each truck driving, and it'll just be a, a controller in the technology role rather than oh, I, I've got no skills in 
We learn a lot about like the training revolution will have to occur to the truck driver controlling digital infrastructure. The sentence he used that stuck out with me on that is humans are harder to upgrade than software. And that was his line on on how we need to be investing in education right now to be ready for the retraining of our of our population. So we can't just like plug in and upgrade. Like we that takes time. It takes multi years to be able to retrain. Like right now, if we really were to flip a switch and all these truck drivers were out of a job or what what happened and he actually correlated to West Virginia where he was from. And one of the things he said is they never reinvested, right? So it was safer to use machines to go mine coal. They are mining just as much coal out of West Virginia, but they're doing it with a third of the less number of resources, human resources, right? They never implemented anything else in that region to actually retrain. You're seeing some of that now, but um, that was kind of the example he gave. So as a society, or at least the United States, not making that investment in education, we will get left behind. And then he kind of opens that conclusion as well, like as an, as, as a, countries that aren't focusing on that will be left behind was kind of the big statement he makes so let me ask a question the role of government yes you know Roche and brian you guys have young kids um the kids are ready to come in school right now knowing what you do about the education school system you're already investigating that etc do you feel like the current system is made up and ready so my note literally reads education system is broken <laughs> that's exactly, that's that's the no right there. The education system is broken. So so it's good for people like us who will sit there and read and take the time and effort to understand this and perhaps help our children through this change. Um, I think something you touched on earlier regarding the truck drivers and some of the transition that I've read about is that initially robots or technology will <clears throat> augment our lives to help them mm -hmm. help our lives and then eventually there'll be a transition point to where it's no longer augmenting, but it's taking over from that perspective. But people like us who have young children who are investing in doing things like this, the disparity between people that aren't is going to just get wider and wider over time. So that that's one of my concerns from society from an overarching perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I can't remember where it was, but in, in that same I don't think it was in the robot section. We'll get to it here later, but it was I actually read two books, but I'm only going to be talking about this one. But the other one was kind of interesting. It was actually talking about how it's inevitable that we're not going to have a choice but to merge with the technology. So that there is a technology. Singularity? Yeah, basically, we're, we're cyborgs. So, to some extent, because these phones and everything, we have a really an extension of us at this point. They're just not physically embedded. But at some point, we will either be outpaced by artificial intelligence and its machine learning capability, right? Whether it's 50 years, 20 years, 1,000 years, really more of a discussion on timeline, but at some point either it will learn faster on its own than we can, or we'll have to be able to learn with it, right? And that was kind of interesting to see that that's probably the future. It's, yeah. We'll have no choice really but to be one and the same. Yeah. And then so like moving on the next segment, we can kind of wrap this up in the conclusion. I don't think Paul wanted to do that one. I'll take the next section was genomics. And out of the entire book, you know, most people around this room know I'm pretty nerdy and I do a lot of research and stuff, but I actually hadn't spent a lot of time looking at life sciences and genomics. So this was probably the most interesting chapter for me because I didn't really know where we were. Didn't know much about DNA sequencing. Um, but um, it, the, the two kind of big overarching notes that I took, and I'm curious to see how Paul saw like the life sciences section and genomics, but um, the one correlation he made that I thought was interesting is connectivity and communication is gonna be a big part of health in the future. 
I was like, I don't really get that. Okay. And then as I read that section, I guess I know it was the ignorance in me, but there is still quite a lot of folks in Africa, in, you know, undeveloped countries that are now gaining access just now coming online and gaining access, you know, they're skipping the entire wired telephones, right? Going right to digital smartphones because the price is coming down and that immediate availability to be able to be connected into quality healthcare is something I guess I just never thought of from just like human life sciences perspective. Like we will be able to be digitally connected, even if we're not in the same space. And that, that plays into the robotic section as well, where you talked about, we can do, you can get the best surgeon in the world over to do surgeries across the, across the world now. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. This is never considered like, and again, that was the ignorance of probably me just not thinking that big and that there's a lot of people that don't have um the but then the bigger one that we were talking a little bit but dna sequencing and um that one was just like mind-blowing and a little bit scary right yeah, so yeah so he talks about so he breaks it down in a couple different sections so like the first one and for for those i know there's some people in the room that have actually done 23 and me and they actually launched um early on i didn't know this so just a little tidbit where they were actually saying they could predict um health issues right and now it's all right now it's ancestry what i didn't know is there's actually a sequencing that costs about what do you say like 9k 9 to 15k or something where they can actually sequence um your your dna and it actually with that type of technology right now they can actually do quite a bit on predictive modeling it's just too damn expensive to be 99 dollars for the mass consumption so it's it's reserved for more specialty analysis the 23s and me is the 99 dollar test what that technology can do right now is really just the ancestry dna kind of matching but they're holding on to that data so when the fifteen thousand becomes a thousand dollars five hundred dollars right they'll be able to push the data through it right it's It's already been scale it's just scaling of the actual tests and making it more affordable and they've already done it and the industrial scale right so Whereas they could um, sequence one genome on its own, uh, like 20 years ago, and it would cost a million dollars to do it. They could then do 10, and that 10 test would cost 100 grand. Now they can do 20,000 at a time, and it costs like a thousand bucks. So it's just the same as any technology scaling. The cost comes down, the ability goes up at the same time. It, you get to a point where it's. When did this book come out? 2016. I think it's down to a thousand bucks right now. Right. Is right. it already down there? Yeah, There's this great company doing I heard about called Toronto. One drop of blood. <laughs> but yeah, it's like the next trillion dollar industry, basically. I think the quote he made is like, it's easily. Talk about who the leaders are in that space. Um, I've got a company name I can give you in a minute. I'm listening to a new book I picked up just that just came out on Tuesday. It's a Diamandis and Stephen Conner. It's called The Future is Here Faster Than You Think. And he talks about a couple of companies in the other two. He, he mentioned a company in the DC area that yeah. was like like a more a bunch of doctors that got together. It's trying to but just before you bounce off that CRISPR is that whole alignment with this and changing DNA at the source itself uh-huh. and being able to switch out those pairs. Gene I don't have a gene drive, but say you get 3.2 billion from your dad, you get 3.2 billion from your mom, put them together, you come out of that, and now they can go down to the gene level and sub and substitute. Wow. It's that, that's a good transition because the one big downside he talked about that I as a dad I've marked down is the downside really is going to be designer babies is yeah. one of the big ones well, that's that's the guy in, jail in, Christ- in china right now the CRISPR baby. <laughs> yeah it's, it's super well yep and they're already doing it in the u.s too 
They just have the multiple eggs, but just then they dodge you an IVF you know, against them, and then they can see like if they're gonna have blue eyes, they're gonna have white. How, how tall they are? They say like that early day rudimentary version, right? And then it was bringing extinct animals back from. Extinction. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I really want to see that. They, they got there um, with, I can't remember, I can't, there was this type of, it was like a bison or something like that that was effectively extinct. That a bison carried it to term. Jurassic Park, and it survived for a couple hours. But they said, that's just happened, and it survived for a couple of hours. Then it'll be able to survive for a day, and a week. And then they said, there's Dolly, right? Dolly the sheep. Right. Right. It's the first, like, we're already at the point where it was taking the time before. So he said it's a matter of time before it's five long while. I mean, it's nuts. Where, um, my last note was, where is the line? Question mark. That was a note I made to myself. Yeah. It's like, I, I was asking that to myself. And I'm, I'm curious, Keith, what do you guys think? Like, where's the line? I, I add to that, too. Like, where is the line? Will we ever do anything to cro not cross it? To not cross well, it? I think the line is interesting. Mm -hmm. Whether you're debating AI or weaponry, I think lines based on culture, right? So we said, no, we're going to do DNA CRISPR babies in the U.S. But in China, they did it. Well, I, I would think about it. I, I, like, I would. And but, but they, but, so they made it illegal here. So you have to go somewhere. Right. It's kind of like you go overseas for like, you know, joint replacement or stem cells or whatever. What are we talking about? about where's the line ethically or morally or where's the line legally? Because so I think, both. I mean, <laughs> okay. I think, I think they're different conversations. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. But that, that's why we perhaps, you know, we say that when we go to fight Quote war, we go in with you know, considering people on the ground, we don't go in with a scorched earth policy, whereas other countries or other tribes of people might. So I think the line really just depends on where in the world you are, the line in different places. What about for you personally? I'm curious. So it depends. And the book I'm listening to, it talks about you know, now you're patient in a war, right? So whatever I can do for myself, I can do now. What I do, I don't know, depending on if it comes to my kids and some kind of let's say medical issue and I need to go overseas to get some treatment done. I would absolutely consider it. Yeah. So for me, when I, sorry, anyone else, I'll, I'll give my opinion. Okay. I, I looked at it two ways. What, like, the line for me is if I can extend my life selfishly, I would almost at all cost. Mm -hmm. And it's like honest, right? Like, and then but, for. But under the assumption that you would have basically the cognitive capability. Yes. Like, I, I, I don't want to be a vegetable. Yeah, if I can maintain a quality of life and I can extend my life, I would, I like, again, it's, I, I view it as a selfish statement, but I would absolutely cross that line. Well, I feel like there's an elder now where we can extend lives, whether it's five, ten years. And we, we are. Terrible quality, right? I mean, right. Depends when you do it, medication right? pushes people from being 75 to 90, but at what cost? Like, they're just there. And then the other thing, you know, I'm, I'm done having kids, but. If that was on the table, quite frankly, and I had the option to have slightly more advanced kids, I would absolutely consider it. I mean, like we moved to a part of town that had a better education system. You know, you always do things if you're within the means of what you have to give your children a, a chance to succeed. And that's like, again, that's a tough. You've seen the movie Gattaca? Yeah. No, it's that great movie. It, yeah, it's exactly what you should watch it. Yeah. It's really good. You watch it. It's, uh, it's a little bit old. Yeah, it's like this family had one um, designer baby and one regular baby. The regular baby dreams of being a designer baby, and like he wants that future for himself. He ends up being an astronaut. It's really, really good. Yeah, brilliant. Really watch it. Don't anyway, it, it, uh, those are my two like like hard questions I ask myself on where is the line, and those were like really hard questions for me. It's almost a philosophical question in some way because you're really talking about going from natural selection to artificial selection, right? You're moving away from 
inherent mother nature doing what it does best to we're going to do it for you and do we know better better than mother nature to some extent right? well, well we're questioning if they are if mother nature's doing its best yeah like with this yeah we're challenging mother like, nature this isn't the best yeah better off. natural selection and all those things can essentially be you know darwin's theory can be moved to the side to some extent yeah. survival of fitness becomes survival of yeah. the pockets limitless. yeah <laughs> limitless. yeah but that's the question too i think is like the, the ethical side is like let's be honest they're really the people are going to do this with the wealth right yeah. exactly people important and so yeah he makes that statement actually the, 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 the blueberry right. the guy eating blueberries yeah it's already so many different yeah for so many different things now it's already the uh the <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we talk, he talks about how he's like, he opens a chapter. I ate some this morning. I didn't He actually opens a chapter about like how he's having breakfast with like a very wealthy person. Like he orders like eggs and bacon or something. Yeah. The guy's like, just a bowl full bowl of blueberries, please. Like this really wealthy yeah. guy is like, I need to get my antioxidants in. Okay. But well, we got two more. Why don't you take the next one since we're playing um, off yes, each other? Yeah, of money, and it, it um, touches on um, basically a big takeaway for me with blockchain and the revelations that blockchain implies, even though not quite there yet. So there was a case study on Square and how Square's changed the um, changed the industry, uh, and then the, the big one for me was blockchain and how that can change things from like um, uh, title uh, title documents mm -hmm. to like. Where instead of signing 200 pages of the house closing, you, you use a, a key on the blockchain and you're yeah. you're done. You signed. I mean, it's decentralizing everything. Right. It's, it's, it's the, the efficiency that could provide. It's not necessarily Bitcoin. It's, it's yeah. blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I really like that we read the same book because that's so interesting. So the way I viewed that chapter, I got a big word just around trust. Okay. And every kind of thing that he wrote. It was this idea of like eliminating middle middle pe middlemen, mm -hmm. which again will eliminate jobs. Paralegals, title lawyers, things like that. Yeah. So it was like so what what you know the internet did to like right. um, like selling online and media in general. What social media did to media. It's transparency, right? Yeah, blockchain is going to do to professional services, right. right? And then that idea right now, I trust my lawyer to review everything, right? And my lawyer, and so. Now I'm going to trust the blockchain, and so it's going to be building up that trust in Africa. I mean, is money really underwritten by anything over there? I mean, I know it's like a million, whatever, to like a dollar. So here in the U.S., we have a level of stability in our money, but there's other places in the world right now that money is really not stable, right? And so I would trust a Bitcoin more because I could spend it on the global market. Um, and so it's like, yeah, maybe like Bitcoin will struggle to be adopted in the west a little bit slower but there's going to be other areas where it's going to add almost immediate benefit because it would stabilize um the region and, and a lot of the the way that money that, acts on that point i thought it was interesting he said it's not the blockchain that's the that's causing the trust issue blockchain mm -hmm. is the infrastructure around things like bitcoin mm -hmm. because coinbase mount guards coinbase they, they've been yeah. hacked people have lost bitcoin yeah. so it's the infrastructure around the the technologies that hang off of, Bitcoin, yeah. uh, off of the blockchain rather than the blockchain. And now you're seeing a revolution in those companies being powered by blockchain. Right. 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 So Coinbase is a blockchain, eventually right. a blockchain business to manage yeah. block base. And, and it, he, he does mention that those early failures need to happen. 
yeah. to, just to make these advances happen themselves. So as unfortunate as it was for people who were lost 100,000 Bitcoin and things like that, needed to happen for the entire thing to work. Otherwise, Bitcoin and the blockchain would already be dead. So it's flat. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's just whoever yeah, it happens. Did you, I'm kind of curious on how you viewed the way he viewed, he wrote about government's role in um, cryptocurrency specifically and how the statement he made is like right now, cash, gold, diamonds are completely like untraceable to a certain degree. And that I think he, he was saying the catalyst at the government level is probably going to be the feds. The Because right now it's like it's deregulated. It's like this libertarian like charge uh, on. It's totally traceable. That's how they took down Silk Road. Yeah. So that's the example he gave. Yeah, exactly. Like Silk Road and all of his users was taken down because every Bitcoin transaction has a as an audit. It's yeah. not private. Right. Everyone thinks it's private. There, it's are, there are privacy coins though. Like yeah, Zcash, Zcash is one. But 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 like the, the bigger blockchain right now in today's environment. And the fact that it was written in 2016 may be a big issue around that because Bitcoin was really D1. Yeah. It was, I think he, he gave three. It was like Bitcoin, Litecoin, and something else. And Ethereum. Ethereum wasn't even no, there. Right. Was right. So, yeah. uh, but, and it was 2016. I don't know if Ethereum was a big thing back then. Sorry, it was starting. Probably there or thereabouts, but it wasn't one of the big three. And I think those more secure um, currencies have come about because of yeah. these issues. Because of these issues, yeah. yeah. But no, completely traceable. There's a digit. It's the same as anything. You can yeah. So right, it's forever. So. The, the one sentence I bookmarked, I, I thought it was good. Libertarians will most likely become the anti-coin. Yeah. Of the anti-coin group, which is funny because like will be the one that push it. yeah, the conservatives are going to be the ones that push oh, it for oh. the traceability and like, which I actually thought like was interesting for you know my understanding of Bitcoin. These cyber hackers that want like you know no centralized government and they're you know the the whole like movement around, but then it's going to be the libertarians that are probably going to be like we need cash. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Yeah, interesting topic. And um, the, the, the one point he did make there though, the last note I had is right now there is the element that's going to slow down adoption is secret identity identity versus where we need to get to really is authorized identity so when i make a transaction i'm actually an authorized user on that endpoint um and that's going to be like the last point of clarity right now that that it's like if yes there's a transaction but that endpoint is somewhat um there's no real validation on that like as me i can make up a fake person create a bitcoin account and transmit it to a wallet right yeah and for it to really get fully adopted like you know a banking system or whatever that there's going to be needs to be some version of like an author, authorized user on the endpoint to really take it to that next level is kind of one of the things he said. I don't remember that. Probably, yeah. Your drop of blood will be. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and that came back to my view on how I read that chapter is we need to develop trust and identity is going to be a trust factor. That for me, this whole section was about trust. So. Um, next next uh, chapter is the weaponization of code, and this was cybersecurity. And it kind of tied into the other stuff as well, quite nicely as well, like blockchain security and things like that, um, as well as security of your genomic data. And the whole, the, the whole it starts to wrap up the whole book. It's really interesting. It's very well layered because each one builds off the other one. The weaponization of code was pretty crazy in terms of some of the, um, just some of the examples they gave about uh, cyber attacks. Israel and Russia and their role in the, I mean it's 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 a interesting read um, that 
that reads like the movie War Games when you when you go through the actual uh, chapter itself. Um, it, this was a scary chapter in terms yeah. of what could be and what could happen. Like but there's also your stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but there's also the the good side of it as well. One of the points was, and I think we've all known this for a long time. As soon as um, a security method comes in, the next day there's something that cracks. Yeah. So there's that constant and cat and mouse. Yeah. yeah. There's like a constant cat and mouse. Exactly. Uh, uh, just improvement and trying to improve security. So the emphasis is that it's always improving, which is great, but it's always getting broke as well. So it's it, it depends. And then they talk about things like the the real scary stuff is like power plant security, and this was a big one for our industry as well. I was thinking. And then later on as well in the book, he talks about uh, Texas being a hub for energy data and energy analysis, so these geographic hubs. And we I just imagine Texas being one of these power kind of security hubs. So in terms of our business, I thought that would be interesting. But the hacking things like power plants, utilities, um, driverless cars, just the potential for all of these new technologies and the robots taking over genomics if somebody hacks a brain surgery or something like that. I mean it's, it's a phenomenal amount of uh, security that you need. So this would probably, with, with genomics being a, a, a trillion dollar industry, I, I actually thought the way he framed it, cybersecurity would be a bigger industry. There $100 billion in 2017, as we said, right? He, yeah, well, the industry, they, there were a couple of predictions. Uh, one guy was at 100, the author was at 175, hmm. uh, and I actually looked at the number as 115 in 2017. Okay. Um, so he he was a little bit optimistic, um, but somebody was right on the money. I mean, you, predictions are prediction, but some, yeah. one of the guys was right on the money, and they were all around this. It's it's going to double, almost double every year. Yeah, and already is. I mean, this came to one of the retraining. He's like, you know, we're going to need a large segment of right. This is a great place. Well, to the more high profile yeah. acts too that you see, the more it's just going to feel it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Give me Larry and some of my Yeah, notes. go ahead. Yeah. Um. This is kind of fun that we read the same thing mm -hmm. and like our notes That's are just different. Club, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was completely unplanned. Actually, it was kind of funny. Um, but so uh, this comes back to I guess my passion is kind of like geopolitics. But one of the things and the one of the examples he gave that really struck home that I've never thought about. But companies are multinational, and hacks occur so quick, right? Like, and most of these technology companies, if they do get hacked, they have very capable. I'll call them counter. Hackers on their side, right? And so one of the questions he posed, and I don't think he answered, I can't remember, but was like, if Google gets hacked, I think it was Google, who knows what it was, but if big company A gets hacked and they are able to actually counter hack the hacker, and if it was the Chinese government and they actually infiltrated the, the government, does that make that a U.S. problem if a U.S.-based company attacks a foreign government? I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I never thought about that. And these companies are multinational. So if Google gets hacked and it goes into their India office, does that mean India was hacked by China as well? Like these big questions like I've never even considered. And it's like, you know, it's like this idea of like companies are big are getting too big to fail to a certain degree. They are. They're their own nations. They, they Back in my book, which I'll talk about later, it's actually they starts rebranding into too fast to fail, which is companies are scaling too fast to fail rather than the size and the velocity at which they're growing. So I heard a podcast recently about when this um, Jeff Bezos hack came out, and it was the government of Saudi that sent the video over via WhatsApp. Jeff Bezos opened this open that because it came from the Crown Prince, and then they hacked his phone and they found his photograph, et cetera, et cetera. Really? And about how now, but as individuals are having you know, $150 billion in the nation state amongst of himself, 
going after another nation state essentially, mm -hmm. and you know him controlling the Washington Post and different outlets. Yeah, exactly. what that looks like from a you know individual telling nation state. There's a company representing America. What does an individual now represent America? Mm -hmm. Someone, someone like that, or Bill Gates? Do they represent what we stand for, the country stand for? I think what you talk about too is what happened what, five seven years ago with Stuxnet, where we put the worm in the nuclear Iran nuclear um, program, and they reversed that on us. We came back to call the hack in the United States. Remember that one? I'm not. Yeah, but check, check out check out Stuxnet, and you'll see what happened. We apparently had a worm sitting in there. Nuclear did our government program. do it or did our, our government did that? So that was government to government, right. but the idea is still the same. But they turned around and but it turned around. Yeah, that's right. The ultimate point that this the whole cybersecurity industry should be a government initiative. Yeah, um, that's my opinion. It was really interesting because you could look at hacking GPS as as or it affects everybody's Google Maps, but you've got you, like any country's troops go in the wall and use a GPS to advance an enemy troops. You screw with that, they're all dead. So it's like national security issues based around any hack in any industry. Well, that's why the battle, battle of satellites, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the whole battle about satellites yeah. because they provide, you know, to the point uh, positioning. And so you see these private companies that are partnering with the government to do satellites, putting up, you know, space. Right, public private public. 84,000 satellites, right? Or Google, the Loon, Loon program, right? right? Putting up satellites essentially. So yeah. that's that next frontier of war right now. Right. My brother in law worked for McAfee, essentially, in a nutshell, says their war room. If a regular person could take a look at the screens in their war room, they would just go hide in the corner. They wouldn't believe the number of attacks that are happening on a minute-to-minute basis. I believe it. To, to your both of your points, uh, the one of the notes I have is the military-industry giants will be slow. Public-private relationships will become a must, and acquisition patterns are going to drive the future of business in cybersecurity. Um, a monumental first step was... Apparently, there's something called D-Shell. I have no idea what it is, but D-Shell, it was a um, government like cybersecurity program, and they actually put it out to advance it on GitHub, which is like, like nothing like that's ever happened before. And they're actually trying to be, I'll call it open source, this idea of like, and they give an example of how Cisco works, and they encourage people to um, start their own company. They pair them up with venture capitalists, and they have the right for a first acquisition. And, so, like, it's recognizing that as companies get bigger and bigger, the military is so large that they can't move fast. So, creating these these ways where you can still innovate um, and then and then grow through acquisition for security is is, is something that he kind of talked about on how we're going to have to migrate because we're just it's so big, like the military industrial complex. And then the other big note I had was security was is and was a public good. It's one of the services that the government needs to provide. Um, so, however, in this new world, it, it, it does start to lean into a bit of a private good because the biggest companies in the world get effectively are going to get all the cybersecurity attention, right, from the government. And so it's this, this weird shift that happens where the government's there to be there for a public good. But quite frankly, you and I are not really getting the benefits the same way from a security, cybersecurity standpoint and the weaponization as, quite frankly, Google is, right? So that, I thought that was kind of interesting. So how do you deal with that in policy? So two weeks ago, the NSA informed Microsoft that there was a bug or a backdoor in the program that Microsoft had to go fix it. Hmm. Yeah, I saw that one. That's crazy. Yep. The other the other thing I thought was really interesting was that the um, they they talked about the Internet of Things and and just every like everything coming around you fridge, your toaster. They said the pacemaker. Yeah, they actually made a they point made on the pacemakers. Um, what did you hack pacemakers? And then um, 
and what if like a million people's pacemakers are all choked at the same time, or the like hospitals melt down, things like that. Right. Nuts. Um, but one of the interesting things was it could be non um, it, non-invasive. Like your toaster could be mining for Bitcoin, and you never know about it. Like, and then if there's 10 million toasters mining for Bitcoin, like whoever's actually hacked those, no one would ever really know about it because it's not really much of a dream. Even if you do it at night, and nobody actually notices or anything like that. Your internet's not going to slow down that much. And he said it's just that security issue behind it, and it would just be it's this whole new background of, of being aware of it and being able to catch it and do something about it. Do you think that not. in the long-term future you'll be able to buy anything that's not a smart device? So you won't even like for those that right. are the pros that want to stay off grid. I think it's going to become a market. It might it's cost become its own market. Yeah. Yeah. Question about yeah. humans taking robot jobs. Yeah, same concept, right? It might it might cost more. So you know what? This is not a smart connection. Really like yeah. it. How yeah. you like this? <laughs> What's automatic transmission versus manual transmission? You used to have to pay more for the automatic, and you got to pay more for a manual. Yeah. Yeah. And what we were talking about with vehicles and the points that it's being mass produced. Yeah, it's just not exactly. Standard, and let's be honest, the average person is just going to buy whatever's new. Well, yeah, I mean, data kind of wraps it up. I, I think um, I'm kind of interested to hear about some of the other books, but the. Oh, I've of, got a whole lot of data, don't worry. <laughs> I, 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 there's two lines that really stuck out. I'll read those. Um, so the one that I wrote down is uh, the currency of the future is data. Um, land was the raw material of the agriculture age, iron was the raw material of the industrial age. Data is the raw material of the of the future. It's kind of one of the things that I thought was really interesting. Now, really. Yeah, really now. It's already there, right? Um, and then the, the only other thing is apparent that I wrote down that I, I thought was interesting. We need to be prepared to teach our kids years before uh, we need to, uh, I wrote my note weird, but we, basically what, what he was saying is like I guess it was around the mid-teens or early teens. We used to have to have the birds and the bees conversation, talk to our kids about sex, but they're actually connected earlier than sort of like the first conversation as parents that we need to be thinking about having isn't about sex anymore. Like the big first big conversation, you know what I mean? It's going to be around data first and making sure they understand that if you say something stupid that you have this star scarlet letter stuck with you for the rest of your life. Right. And I thought that was like just as a parent. And then I got some other notes here, but I'm sure your other books are going to talk about it. Um, the last one was just kind of geography and the future future markets. And the big note I had there is um, economies that focus on women will always win. That's like the one big note I have that I think is worth <laughs> talking about. I don't know if you want to add anything on that data or uh, no, data. The one thing that stood, stood out to me was uh, just just. Prior to 2000, there was something like 24% of our data was stored online. Now it's 99%. So, like in 20 years, we've got like the price of stored data storage has gone way down. The actual accessibility. So that's that's not a long time for something that significant to change. It had a big impact for a lot of industry. A lot of it is because they found a way to make it free too. Yeah. And consumer, the consumers. They found a way to pay for Facebook. They found a way to collect it. Right. They know that's how much value it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the other areas I thought were interesting was the ag tech side of it. So, um, ag -tech? Yeah. Ag -tech, yeah. So, uh, it's basically a bunch of. So, it, the really interesting example I found was that there's a bunch of information available to farmers and to all of the periphery industries around farming now. And farming being as important as it is, we we're seeing record numbers of farming um, bankruptcies. <laughs> the data came out this morning. Um, so, what the for example, the seed farmers are doing now is using the farm data 
um, to price their seeds to a point that basically puts each farmer break even and they can't make any money, but they have to have the seeds. So the seed farmers win, but the farmers aren't. Right. So then what the big the big farms do is going to be big data making big farms. So all the smaller farms are going to get swallowed up by the big farms, big corporate farms, and then they're just going to take the... It's not different than the tech industry, right? The right. big boys just buy up all the small Any industry. So the use of data in the farming industry has a huge implication to to basically the whole of the United States as a, as a country and, our, and it impacts us as well in terms of our food, our availability of food, the cost of food. That was a really interesting um, sector of it. That the ag tech side of things is a is a growing. Um, there's so much data available to the ag tech industry that it's it's actually putting the farmers out of business. It was a crazy way to look at it. Um, the and the mortgage. I mean, it, it was such an expensive to topic. On the every, like everybody's got a scandal with one of the head the headers, and it's like you could. We're we're lucky really because not, we didn't get the like the Facebooks of the world too with 17, 18, right? So all the stupid stuff we did when we were 10 isn't on the internet. Now it is. And everybody's got a scandal. You can put something up that you did when yeah. you were 10 and then you're, somebody will use it against you yeah. at, a, at a job interview when you're 21. So, yeah. um, Scarlet letter. What? Yeah. Same, yeah. Same point. Yeah. Um, so, and then the use of data to make, it's almost like you, like, it's going to embed a philosophy amongst people that you have to be perfect all the time. It's yeah. More fake for that. Right. Well, yeah. Um, and it's that it's that perfect all the time mentality that that they say will drive um, will actually drive more of a need. So I say this. So whereas your job won't completely taken, there's still a human element to it because if you look solely at the data, if the data is going to say a 35 year old male is always about choice for a job because they're not too young, not too old, hyper productive, no childbearing years, and things like that. So that's that's the employee you should employ. Whereas if you actually look at it from a human perspective, it's like it's not that's what you should. Like there's a bunch of other factors that fit the team, they have the right personality, etc. So there's a whole bunch of decision making that needs to be made like outside of the bias. Right, right. So that that bias can't. It, right now, we're having difficulty identifying those biases um, through data and through machines. So that's why the human element still needs to. Survive. Yeah, the, the note on that one I had is instincts replaced by algorithms. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, and then on the geography, the geography was really interesting as well. So. Yeah. The, the example I, I was actually talking to Roshan about this this afternoon in, in the car was that the that big cities can really consume everything. So Silicon Valley, Israel, um, and, and London, New York, the, the hyper cities, like the big the centers of the financial world, those companies based in those cities have the ability to swallow everything else up. So everything just becomes city-based. Um, and, and massive scale, which which is a real risk in terms of innovation. Basically, those guys controlling the universe. So you, I don't know if you had anything else on geography, but that was really well, no. Really just the addition. I, I think I really appreciated the way he viewed. Um, you know, that statement I made earlier about you know nations that that prior put a focus on women and prioritized women will always win. Um, you know, cutting fifty percent of the labor force is just backwards. It's the other note I had. Yeah. What led you to that conclusion? Um, well, so he was, I think he made the comment on Saudi, was that right? Or there was something on, I can't remember what. A different country, but it was like Saudi. It yeah. was like, yeah, it was like. I've never heard of it, actually. So yeah, I don't remember which which country, but he was just Afghanistan doing that. Afghanistan or something? Afghanistan? Yeah, it was, it was Stan something, yeah. you know. But 
but just like and and he tied it in i think he did a really good job on on he was talking about the innovation side of it and um he actually talked a little bit about silicon valley but silicon valley doesn't focus on how we produce our food and then that's how he pivoted into like ag tech and like these like i mean i guess the best way to think about it is what we're doing right like nexus like we're subject matter experts in in, in this yeah like uh, so like even like detroit will become probably the center of the future vehicle at some point again the talents there like so just a lot of that kind of stuff um i thought was interesting um i think he did comment on china in this in this session as well where if you're not focusing this comes back to retraining we talked about earlier but if you're not focusing on retraining for the future china's heavily manual labor still right they can do a lot at a lower cost but in the long term right like they will get left behind if they're not innovating yeah. he does make the point on they're sending their people out to go learn and the one thing they're doing really well is pulling giving chinese nationals that have learned you know in the us in london wherever a lot of in incentives to come back to china and that's a big part of their future strategy that i thought was kind of interesting on and saudi does the same thing where you can actually go get education uh, advanced college right in the united states do your mba whatever and then come back to saudi so was was the jet would you believe the general tonality or undertone of the book was optimistic pessimistic or either we were we can't, i i think he sets it up to be pessimistic but brings you back down with some optimism and some control around the pessimism. a little bit i thought it was optimistic that was funny because like i as, as i read through this it was like he gave you some of the downside scenarios um but then i always felt like it ended pretty optimistic on like you know we we can find a cure for cancer we can you know like yeah. um I, I saw that we can find a cure for cancer but we could also end up with every with designer babies and it's a moral mess you know? <laughs> yeah. so, i guess it's how you how, how do you yeah how do you digest this book it probably sets up for a new so conversation around are humans inherently evil or not? Yeah, that's a good visit. <laughs> it was a uh, Waziristan, Pakistan, right? Okay, okay Pakistan. And then he concluded, and the conclusion really was really kind of powerful. It's only like six or seven pages, um, but he talks about how he talks about robots taking jobs and things like that. But the bit the the main job any of us have is like being parents, and we've got now got a different landscape to when he was a kid, where your kid gets a phone as soon as they're born and you've got a digital identity as soon as you're born and we're facing new challenges as parents for newer generations and, and just the the um the literacy around these these topics and being familiar with them is important to help us do the the kind of oldest job in the world and that's raise kids and i thought it was a really important um yep. important topic there and he, he touches on jack dorsey being a pioneer as well the founder of twitter so yeah um he, square, right? yeah it's kind of square yeah yeah, I mentioned him a few times in this book as well. So the the, the conclusion was really powerful. So I would say kind of if you wanted to fast track this, start there and then work backwards, like read the conclusion and read the rest. It's, kind of, it's a really good way to flip it on his head and think about it a different way. So, um, but no, it's... Yeah, and maybe it's the conclusion stayed with me and I felt like the conclusion was optimistic. Yeah, yeah. Right, and that's probably why it was the last thing I listened to and it was, that's, I thought it was a good way to end the book. Like, Recency bias. Yeah. Is that a real yeah. thing? Okay. I believe that you should, uh, should stop it according to one per book. That's a natural way. Well, we can chop it up. We just keep talking. You know, it's going to create like an eight gigabyte file. It'll be, it'll be fine. That's and, right. and almost we have, we have to close the whole meeting and reopen the meeting. So oh, okay. data so cheap now that I learned that it doesn't matter. <laughs> eight gigabytes is nothing. We're going to run all weekend. That's it.
quite the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> and then the integration of data into our lives was, uh, as a parent, somewhat concerning on talk duration. Yeah, we had a long conversation over it. over it. My concern about how parents, it's, uh, it's it was 24-6, the power of unplugging one day a week. And it's a total disconnection from technology. The author, uh, Tiffany Schlain, uh is Jewish, so they have the Shabbat, which is uh, compared to the Sabbath, the day of rest. And so they take a tech day of rest for their family and, and totally disconnect, which is, it, it would be really difficult for some. There may be an integration of some of that element throughout a day, you know, in our lives instead of a whole a whole day of a week um, because we, we're so dependent on it now. Um, but I'll just go through my notes. I kind of took notes and key points uh, going through the book. Um, so the general highlight is uh, the benefits uh, of removing technology from life one day a week. Um, the author explains the, the design of technology as much, much like our discussion previously um, with the goal uh, to get providers addicted to what they're providing. Um, there's endless fees, refreshes, the casino mentality, um, the notifications, endless notifications, vibrations, just dings and ticks. I mean, we're like no, no different than the dogs anymore. And, and you know, and oh, like, no, Pavlov's like, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Pavlov's <laughs> absolutely like with everything. You, know, like, you have that notification, and you want to know. You have that desire. Um, it almost eats at you to not know, right? Yeah, that's how they've created it. Right. I mean, and and we talk a lot about the addiction. You guys are all calling. You want to know who, who called you. Right. You don't have to call them back right away. You want to know who you missed. No, I don't. Yeah. No, I just strap it on my wrist and tell everything I need to know. <laughs> 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 I mean, my wife is so much more in tune to the notification now than me because I don't have that. You don't have a smartwatch, yeah. But now she's, I'm like, you, you're ignoring me now. <laughs> so, so it's interesting, you know, to get that outside perspective. Um, but analogy that I enjoyed was uh, considering your mind like a, like a, like a PC and all these endless tabs open and then having to shut down and do a full shutdown sometimes just to get rid of everything and just to start fresh, you know, and so that's what they compared the book to, you know, the, this day of rest and these cash. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of just refresh and, and they talk about sleep as well and just the importance of that, um, that whole process um, to really relax, meditate, take all the distractions out and focus internally on on you and your life and, and things outside of technology and how important that is that that we reluctantly do anymore because we're so um, inclined to use technology. Um, part two, that was part one. I'll, I'll, I'll look at the table of contents to see go over there. Uh, the day different from all others. So just talking about the day of rest. Uh, uh, part two was being on 24-7. Um, and that's somewhat of that, just tech shaping us to interrupt and disconnect from, uh, from interactions with other people so much, like in, in eye contact and, and visual cues, or, or we can lose those over time because we're so ingrained in the distraction. Basically, like everyone will become socially awkward. Right, <laughs> right. And, and are we already, or even won't even get to that point where you don't even have social interactions to be awkward. Right. It, it, was there any discussion around that chapter? Or that they talk about the average America. It's kind of the. It was a, a summary of what me, you, and Raj talked about previously. Mm -hmm. Like I read this book, and I was like, oh, that 
yeah. kind of summary of our whole discussion that was we there had. Any, was there any element of like what they were reading about around technology to get to where like virtual and augmented reality basically mirror the fact that you don't have to have physical interaction without having the mental avatars, equivalent, equivalent like avatars? Or no. They were, they were trying to separate. It was more like, like get away from that. Just focus on yeah. get away from that. Right? Okay, gotcha. Disconnect. Yeah, that, that was the bigger picture. Just focus on trying to be human again. How do we, how do we get that back? Um, average American spends 74 hours a week starting at, uh, staring at a phone. More than the sleeping, eating. You know, how long? Is how long? They said 74, 74 hours. hours. Which is, so that's like three straight days. That's half your week. Actually, yeah. that's more than it's 158 hours a week. How many yeah. how many hours are you? So think about how many sleep is actually. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, and also on this on that note, talks about Netflix. The CEO is talking about the biggest competitor to sleep. Yeah, yeah I think you told me yeah, that yeah. statistic in your your other book about yeah, sleep. Yeah. I'm gonna read that book after this, by the way. That why we sleep. You're right next. Put my back well Terrifying when you read it. <laughs> <laughs> they compare it to like an overuse of tech. It's like binge eating, and we have to self-regulate our reliance on technology. Figure out that, and that will make us like. More in tune with what's wrong. You're doing it's it right now. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Yeah. I just, yeah. It's, had, but it's a necessity almost. Too. It's like you, you have to have it because yeah. like, it's an expectation now to, to respond to that. Right. Um, uh, another good uh, quote in there tech companies know our emotional buttons and they're pushing them constantly because they installed them. I mean, and that's <laughs> why do they predict? Any of your feeds predict the news you want because they they know how to interact with you because they designed it so that they learn your patterns right. They could they have your algorithm basically. Um, and then uh, let's see part three, uh, making twenty four six happen, which is um, strategies that they use in their lives to disconnect. Um, Taking the day off, putting the phones away, making a plan the day before, and like going to do you know something in town, going to a zoo, um, having a picnic, helping your plan, helping your kids to plan the day, make dinner, do different things. It could be a disconnection for like four hours at a time or something. I don't know. I've, I've personally started setting the timer at six o'clock on my phone, and I have I just my my alarm notice. Uh, and it's it's unfortunate I have to put this, but family time, like you know, focus on kids, put this away. And so I, I put it away for at least an hour and do something with the kids, do dinner, something. It's just kind of a disconnection from from that because you know, a lot of times I I catch myself. They'll say you know they'll be talking to me and I'm looking at something and scrolling and and then they'll even say what you know what are you doing and I'm, so so I try to disconnect that after reading this. Um, part four was uh interesting from a business perspective it says keep keeping tech human and so uh one of the big parts is practicing uh entrance entrances and exits and how important it is to um like start a day with your wife with a smile or a hug like or coming into a room without having your emotions coming from your previous discussions from a totally different you know environment impact that the day or that that moment and in business that's that could be a big thing too especially with our tech interactions we can be emotionally impacted by you know a notification we see or um, an email and then letting that bleed over into our conversations and other meetings or, or whatnot could, could impact um, could impact those those days let's see i think cal newport called it like cognitive residue 
He talks about controls for a minute. What up? Um, let's see. Uh, this one was where we focus on parenting with tech. Um, and waiting to the, the focus on waiting until eighth grade, which would this is kind of like our discussion. We talked about this a little and uh, the movement of uh, having your kids wait to get a smartphone and um, trying to make that decision. And we talked a lot about it. I struggle with that decision and what, how to, how to make it right. What's that? Right. And then my kids, granted, they're in first grade, but it says average. Uh, so 30% of 8 to 10-year-olds have smartphones already, and then 70% of 11 to 13-year-olds have phones. And so there's there's a peer pressure and a parent peer pressure to have your kids fit in and, and, and actually experience that as well and not be, I mean, are they isolating them, themselves from their peers by not doing that? Absolutely. But at what cost? It's that balance. Well, the conversation you and I had is the, um, you know, being able to know where your children are, you know, there's, there's an element of, like, I mean, I don't know, where's the trade-off, right? I mean, my, yeah. my wife and I talked about it, but, like, you know, once your kids are out of the house, and you said they have those watches with GPS tracking, and there's other ways to solve that outside of just having a phone, but I thought, you know, there are benefits, right, to having a phone, not always negative, but the problem is they're always going to have access right now. I told you I'm not as negative as a lot of parents are right now on technology and screen time, and I don't, I just don't view it the same, but... I know that's not the popular argument right now, but at the same time, I do like having the control. Yeah, so no, they, that was a conversation we had. Is like, I like the fact I can take it away. It's not like always with them. That that for me is the bigger thing as a parent. Yeah, they talk about unless uh, instead of us being helicopter parents now, we're like privacy and and data control. Like we're we're ingrained in everything that our kids are. You know, that's how we we satisfy that because we go and look and make sure we have access to everything they do. And we're constantly monitoring from a technical perspective instead of helicopter, like keeping from falling off something anymore. It's like keep getting into the wrong technology. Um, uh, one of the quotes that stuck with me is we take 16 years to transition kids from a car seat to a driver's license with a lot of care along the way to ensure they progress safely. But we give them phones at like fifth, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, you know, Without giving them directions on how to use it or what the what the controls around that are, and so they kind of framed it differently in my mind. If if it were to be, what well, kind of has an art book, right? Like like having that conversation with your kids, right? Before said. the birds and the bees conversation, right? Like it's yeah. almost important. It's more important to have that conversation. Like once it's out there, it's out there. Everyone will be able to see it. It's public, you know. Like and understanding how. The internet works is because the exposed. first important conversation you need to have with your children. And the biggest challenge around that kind of touching a group is that, so for example, if my daughter doesn't have a phone, but her friends do, and so them tagging and them like so yes, you can try to control your own data and your own behavior. Mm -hmm. But when their friends are taking photographs, recording conversations, recording you know videos of several other person, that's a challenge too because now they're taking your data and putting it online, mm -hmm. tagging you and doing all that. So. Uh, Part five was the science of unplugging, um, and it talks about sleep, the importance of it. Um, so during during sleep, the brain shrinks in a process called uh, synapsis homeostasis. This allows for the cerebral spinal fluid 
and the brain derives rapidly, washing out the proteins that build up um, while you think and, and uh, process things along the, along the day. So why sleep is important. Um, they mentioned things in here like that. Thomas Edison's quote, never go to sleep without a request to the subconscious because your dreams allow you to really discover things differently and open up your, your perspective in a totally different way. And so um, I thought that was interesting from a peer-to-peer uh, advice. Like I, I never knew, knew that or thought of it. They said there's like Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison would uh, hold on to like a heavy ball or a key. And then they would, whenever they would get to fall asleep and drop it, a lot of times they would discover in those moments they were the clearest uh, state of mind. Yeah, yeah. So they talked about that a bit, and that was really interesting. I hadn't heard of that. Interesting to me. Um, it's really that discussion of that uh, rebooting. This chapter was really rebooting your brain, and uh, that disconnection. What it does to to kind of help you focus in internally, meditation, um, disconnect that reliance. And then uh, part six, the big picture, um, discusses uh, the regulating usage from a personal and public policy perspective, using time and thinking more intentionally about our um, time as it relates to our focus and how we interact with technology. Um, but that's the that, that was a general theme, and then the question that I asked, are we too reliant on technology, but it's in the same vein, it's um, how do we not, how do we disconnect and still maintain our obligations, right? People can wait. Tell them I'll do it tomorrow. Right. But, but that's so becoming give, less Give them your beeper number. <laughs> right, yeah, no, she talks about that. <laughs> beeper used to be that because he was a doctor, and, like, he had to go because it was an emergency. It was now, an ended in 911. Right. <laughs> now we get distracted, and it's not an emergency. I can see that where somebody's literally going to die if you don't respond. Right. But I think a lot of people in this company, and this can bring it close to home, need to tell clients this can wait till tomorrow. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, right, at every level in this company. We need to be able to not everything's a fire fire drill. Like you don't need to respond to some stuff immediately. It's ex expectations rather than assume expectations. Right. So if a client says, "Hey, I need this done," well, hey, I can get to this on Monday. It's Friday afternoon. I can't do it right now. And you know, it's in my experience, it's always fine. Like no one's no one's. I can think of a handful of occasions where someone's like, "I need this within the hour," and they'll tell me that. And if I if I can do it, I'll do it. If I can't, too bad. You know. So, yeah. Um, a lot of people, I think, in this company just assume that everything needs to get done yesterday, and that's... Still, you just can't help me. No. I feel like I've been to no, you in the past. I think you're a lot better at it I've, now. I've been working on it. Yeah, yes. you're a lot better at it now. It's, it's other people. But yeah, I, that's... Yeah. No, so I was joking. It. But yeah, it I, I, was very, I was very guilty of it. I, yeah. and, and to be fair, I still sort of am very guilty of it, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, all of us are. Like, I, I was thinking after this, it brought it to my attention that just the notifications on my phone and, like, that desire for me to, like, I'll pick up my phone and nothing has gone off, but I have the urge for some reason to open up and see if I have any notifications that aren't, like, things, but that have showed up in the dot on my phone, like, that I need to reply to. It's yeah. like, it's just something that's somewhat ingrained in me now. It is that addiction. Yeah. But I noticed that after that, that's whenever I decided I need to set a alarm. So this is going to be really stupid. One of the things I did is I I hacked my watch to only show me notifications for things that I really want to see. So you can set what 
vibrates on here versus that. Yeah. And even that you can set too, but I found that helpful. Like this thing's been vibrating. Like you only check it when, so that's helped me a little bit where I'm not constantly like every time that thing makes a sound, you know, I have like if Anisha texts me, like it, it will vibrate if like so you can flag favorites and then just vibrate on favorites. And so that's been a little bit helpful. So focus notifications. Yeah. Are like you were in like you were in the conference room with me at the yeah. client meeting. That thing was vibrating. And I only looked at it like twice, right? It's because it was when this thing went, I was like, okay, I should, this yeah. is enough and important enough for me to look pick up my phone, right? I need to get you my don't respond to anything at eight or nine o'clock at night. It's really it's kind of frustrating for me. Can I say something real quick? Yeah, because I've gone through this, right? I grew up with with uh, fax machines that weren't fax machines. They were telexes and heat sensitive paper and all that shit. <laughs> and the problem now is that you don't have time to make a decision, right? You don't have time to think about anything. Yeah. Whereas 30, 40 years ago, you got a letter in the mail or you got a contract in the mail, you could read it, you could think about it, you knew it, you know. Now, instantaneous reply. Okay. Sign this. Well, what? Just, we need to sign right now. We just did it. We don't <laughs> sign. Yeah, yeah, you just did it. Yeah. And, and then you have to compare it to some other version. I mean, if you don't do that, you just assume everything's right. It's likely to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's really bad from a legal standpoint because you're, you're signing stuff and you're making commitments, you don't really know. You really don't know. But you don't have time to understand anything. That's why humans are asleep. But if I <laughs> humans don't have time yeah. to hey, I'm replace all of them. Robots have time, have all the time in the world. Docky signs are another one of the stocks, by the way. Oh really? I mean just it's been doing very well, but yeah. for that reason it's like that's Culture links I mean, look how organisms that are dependent on DocuSign now because it's so much easier, but there's so many other things that you start shifting to that just because of that. I mean, that's, that's okay. Excite just as much as others. From my book, DocuSign's already out of date because of blockchain. So to block the implication of using blockchain for all of that just makes DocuSign a smart contacts or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. You just use a key rather than uh, even just clicking a signature each time. Don't even need it. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, and I don't think it was, it was a discussion we had over beers at the airport is... I'm definitely more bullish on technology. I'm not as anti-technology as some of the narrative right now. Um, I'm more of an alarmist for technology because I <laughs> but, don't but know the how point, the point I made, I, like, and I, like, I'm okay with it, but at the same time, I feel Americans are like, just want to throw this out and be unreliant on it totally. Like, I'm kind of the opposite. Don't get me wrong. I, I love I want to, like, almost disconnect from it in some ways because I'm, I'm, I'm worried about what it will do. I mean, I don't know. There's not enough studies there to really tell me health-wise, like what what is it doing? I don't know. We won't know for thirty years. But the point I made, and and this is just what I'm trying to check it and bring it back, at least for me, how I kind of check it again is like, okay, so we had TV, and we definitely the TV was turned on to distract me growing up, you know, and then Super Nintendo, like I would be lost on Mario for hours as a kid. Like completely, you know, like and screen time was a thing then, and you know, it's like you shouldn't let your kids watch, but yeah, and but we still, I mean, I, I guess once we really get into pure virtual reality and we're living like nine hours, we're hooked up on an IV and we're just living in virtual, 
I, I just speeding too. I hear what everyone says, and I know there's there's key flags, and you know we are spending more time in living in a digital world. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's still like my kids at the playground playing with other kids. Like they're still getting a lot of the same time yeah. that we we played. I mean, like okay, I guess one of the things this was the thing we talked about the phone is like when I would go play in the woods, I was disconnected. Like if I broke my damn leg out there, I broke my damn leg out there. I had to figure out how to get home. At least for like. Is it such a bad thing to have that some level of accessibility, like especially with how dark some of the world's getting right now? I don't know. Like, I can kind of. I feel like I maybe I'm just one of those parents who can justify it, and I'm cool with it. But so statistics are the world's not actually getting dark, actually getting better. Yeah, I, I, actually, I, I, I actually believe that, and I subscribe to it. Um, and the point. So I agree with you regarding TV and games. And I my biggest challenge is that when those came out, it wasn't specified for you. General population, but I feel like the research shows the pattern that are specified. If I give my kids a phone or give her a phone, and she starts interacting with the phone, the phone will then be specified directly for her. And I think that's what's caused the problem to drive people into echo chambers and separating society. And that's where I feel like powers or people or politics or whatever it might be can now individualize us and start creating those issues amongst us where the, the, the general game by itself cannot do that. Or the TV itself can't do that. I spent my echo chamber was my family and their views on politics. And I mean, if anything, but they have I, your best interest at heart. Ultimately, your family hopefully have. Your I mean, I I'd, I'd argue the the rampant racism that exists in like certain societies and passing that down. I feel like this again. This is me and my optimism around technology. This allows individuals to get connected into a world that they've never experienced before and actually engage outside of their little bubble. Again, as a parent, you need to foster creativity in your children to go seek that. It's not gonna just naturally happen. But like, my parents had some really views that I believed for a long time until I decided I was gonna go research certain things for myself and make my own opinions about things. and. Uh, but again, I know not. I'm very. I'm an inquisitive person. I I, mm. I like to learn different things. It's just what I do. So I know that's not everyone. I I, I hear what you're saying on echo chambers, but I, I, I believe it. But I, I still believe there was a version of that that was already happening even without technology. I agree. There were. There were. Absolutely. So, for example. Yeah. So my my conclusions from our discussion was one way communication. If they're just taking you. TV show or a game, then I have less hesitation about that versus a two-way something interacting interacting with them and responding to, you know, if, if it's a person or a game, um, like basically Mario Mario versus Fortnite, where you can play one. You, I'll watch my son play a game of Fortnite, and you have probably uh, fifty notifications come up with these achievements that you've made along the way, and you're doing this. Go here. You uh, you know, you achieve this, you got these points. Instead of like Mario, where you just got a point, you give like there's it's constantly reinforcing that within that game now versus the Mario. Like so just being more conscious of, of those two way communication lines that I'm letting have access to versus and even the, the headset now. Like we're like, no, you don't have a headset unless the headphones are on. Because you have to be cognizant of what they're listening to. Well, what they're you know, gonna be trash to people, but 
Well, you know it, you'll get it. Like I saw some Chinese kid on the other side of the world. Like an eight-year-old. Like my wife saw it. She's playing duos or something with a little eight-year-old kid. It happened to me last week. My eight, my seven-year-old in the guest room playing roadblocks, and all of a sudden I hear this voice, this grown man voice. Like, what the hell's going on? I go in there. It's her friend's dad that joined the game and playing the game. Shit, you know. Yeah. Conversely, it's amazing because I've just. Something I've been seeing is like my uh, my nephew, who's like I think he's nine, got a uh, Nintendo Switch, and because my dad's on a boat and he travels so much and he's not home that often, he also got one, and they actually play together now, and it's actually a remote bonding session if done properly. Now my brother and his wife control their his usage, and they actually I think I told you this, they have a really interesting policy. They say up to one hour, you only get to play as long as as much time as you spend reading. So if you read 30 minutes, you can play up to 30 minutes, but max is an hour, and it's only on the weekends, things like that, but they basically, they basically say, you have to do this in order to get in. Four hundred one k We'll back up to 30 minutes. Game 401k, but, and then, but then he gets to play with my, his grandfather and stuff, so it's interesting cool. to see there is a dynamic where it can actually, if done properly, can actually cool. bring you guys kind of interesting. My four-year-old son just showed my two-year-old daughter how to do, I told you this. Yeah. They were on YouTube Kids, and there's a voice search functionality. So they're already more. I, I, if I want to search something, I and I'm a pro voice advocate. I think it's going to be the future on how we interact with tech. Yeah. And I still pick up my phone, unlock it, open Google, type in a bunch of damn words, hit search. My son's showing my two year old. I'm like, you want to see Spider Man? You know, clicks the audio search. It's like Spider Man. <laughs> he just literally ran a Google search at four. Yeah. So, I mean, there is this element of, like, my, you know, we You're just right got right. the internet in the 90s, and I figured out HTML, and that was what opened my world up to learning how to code. I mean, like, like and that, that base has made me dangerous in today's world, right? Yeah. Like, so, I, again, I'm a, I, I view technology a little bit differently. You know? yeah. I mean, like, it was that, that world, that first hello world I did in HTML that gave me the foundation of who I am today is... And my passion for tech. So yeah, you're up. You're guys. My last one. Me technologically. That's how different your kids are going to be. I feel like the gap's going to be bigger. Yeah, because the rate of change with technology is going to account for a bigger gap than the rate of change. I mean, I know how to do it, kinda. I know how to do enough to get by, but not like you guys. My five-year-old niece beat me at Marriott. I'm good at Mario. Like, I'm, I'm, really, I'm like top five in the world. I'm good at it. Like, All right, well, we got to buy a Mario now. Yeah, we know what part we're cutting out. Yeah. Yeah. No, let's get, that's getting public. I am the legit. I get it. I know how to work a switch. It didn't take me long to figure it out. She beat me. I was like, I, I don't even know how she beat me. Like, she doesn't know. But it. Like, she don't get it anymore. Man. The old people joke is my computer screwed up. I don't know how to fix it. The first, and your buddy said, the first thing you need to do is kidnap a 12 year old in your neighborhood. It's always user, right? Yeah, it's a picnic, right? Probably kidnap a computer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Screen of death, baby. You're up. All right. So I read a book called Don't Be Evil by Reina. Self help book? Yeah. 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 Don't be evil was actually Google's original mantra. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, for those that didn't know. Really? That. Yeah. Oh, uh, interestingly, 
really great so value. One of the things I didn't know was that Sergey Brin's wife found a 23 in me. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just that. learned that from our book. So, huh, there you go. Um, so the author, she's she's the global business columnist and associate editor for Financial Times. Pretty established author um, and won like some you know some pretty major uh, awards as a columnist over the years. Interestingly enough, the reason she wrote this book was that uh, she was interviewed to run the uh, the entire PR division of Google. And when she showed up to the corporate headquarters, uh, headquarters at Google, um, they asked her to sign an NDA. And she, because she was in this kind of mode and understood this data privacy world a bit as a research analyst and as a columnist over the years, she read it and it was just ludicrous. She was like, you're basically saying I'm signing my life away and I haven't even started the interview. I haven't even got upstairs yet. And so she refused to sign it. And they were like, well, then you can't get interviewed. She was like, good. I don't want to work for a company that is looking at this. So it sparked her basically to be like, I need to research and investigate this more. Like, is this what's happening like now? And so she wrote this book. Um, and it's essentially the moniker says how big tech betrayed its founding principles and all of us. It's kind of terrifying in some regard. And it's basically what we already know, which is what is happening with our data and how it's being used to be basically be weaponized against us without our with sometimes our knowledge. So I'll start off by saying, like, raise your hand if you trust the big tech companies. Like, truly trust them with your information. Yeah, raise, your hand know, if you, we, raise your hand if you did not raise your hand if you used one of their tools today. Yeah. Yeah. Raise your hand if you're going to use one of their tools tomorrow. But the, the thing is, we know what we're doing. Yeah, we're doing with it. And, and we're still so, using that. Like, for the, me, the, and I'll go through the book a bit, but for me, like the philosophical question I kept asking myself as I was reading this is like, everybody knows this has happened. Yeah. At least the vast majority of people know not to trust them, that they're using our data against us, and it's just absolutely, and it's geopolitical issues are forming out of it, but yet no one's doing anything about it. And so I'll, I'll go through my what the book talked about, but. Um, that's the kind of the question I'll pose at the end is kind of what is everybody's thoughts around like what is it really going to take for people to change their habits in order to stop this and stop what this is is what really what this book's talking about. So one of the things I found the most interesting was that where the future of this is likely going and it's crazy. So she paints a picture of the future of the insurance business. So picture a point, picture a point in time in the future and probably not that far from now where to your guys' point from your book, everything is smart connected, right? your toaster, your fridge, every credit card transaction is blockchain linked to other companies. So data is essentially free flowing amongst everybody. Mm. Um, you essentially have your phone on you, you have smart watches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, even those watches are starting to integrate with healthcare. So they take your blood, you know, they can eventually take your blood pressure. They're looking at your heart rate monitors. So what happens when insurance companies now are sophisticated enough to aggregate all this information and they real time price your policy by the minute? Picture that. So you, Paul, and I decide we're going to go for a jog in the park one day to get some exercise, and the insurance company realizes, well, that's a much bigger risk that you're going to get hit by a car or something's going to happen to you than when you were just sitting in your office doing nothing. So your insurance premium spikes. Yeah. Or the invasion of privacy when, this is the funny one, she said, when your 13-year-old son is smoking a joint up in his closet and doesn't want you to know about it, and the real-time sensor in your um, you know, your fire alarm and everything, although it doesn't trigger, recognizes that that's happening and spikes your insurance. And you look at your bill and go, what the hell is that? And you ask your son, you find out what's going on. Just so this whole concept of everything being integrated to the point where you almost can't even live your life where everything isn't being monitored and being packaged and sold and traded amongst all these groups is really quite, you know, it's kind of a, some of the fundamental part of this book. And what the other element of it is, is how it's 
been allowed to get to where it is and how it's still being allowed in terms of like just the complete lack of antitrust enforcement, which I'm sure Jimmy has great knowledge of. But what what they're basically saying is, and we talked about this earlier, is like mm-hmm. the too big to fail concept has become too too fast to fail. And what that means essentially is these so these four or five major companies, Google, Amazon, Netflix, um, you know, Apple, et cetera, really have gotten to a point where they're so much integrated into the GDP of this economy that if you were to break them up, you would literally see a, like an absolute collapse in our economy and our stock markets and our banking systems. I mean, it's to the point where it's gotten like, they almost can't fail now. Kind of like the banks, right? You argue the same. Yeah, ask the EU about that. Yeah. <laughs> and she, it. And, and her point is basically technology is the new banks. Only the difference is, is they're hiding under the radar and they're very stealth-like because no one in the government really understands this whole data movement. I mean, you saw probably the uh, the deposition <laughs> of Mark Zuckerberg. Tell Someone, me about the internet. Yeah, what? <laughs> How do you make money? Well, so, Senator, well, they don't, I know. Google, I don't have the iPhone. Yeah. And so some of the things and some of the um, some of the examples in here of how the data is being used and what has been uncovered through a lot of these um, investigations that have existed is just downright shocking. I mean, it's, you know, one of the great examples was, you know, Google essentially has positioned itself. Unfortunately, Google gets a pretty bad rap in this book. They all do, but Google gets really hit pretty hard. Um, And they basically have, they have 275 full-time lobbyists. Uh, they're one of the largest, if not the largest, besides I think it was Facebook. The, I think it was the the only lobbyist group in yeah Facebook was right there. The only other largest lobbyist group in the world was the pharmacy industry, the pharmaceutical industry. Otherwise, Google and Facebook are the second, third largest. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars. The current chairman of the FTC is the former uh, Google security officer, and it's just like the book just goes on. Like everyone in the government was tied to these guys. Um, Who's the least regulated? Pharmacies and the only one it talks about in here that um, is close to trying their best is Apple, and it's because they don't really do anything with data. They're really a hardware company, which is a little bit different between Amazon. And and that's what you need to differentiate. They're trying, and you can see well, they it, just right? like terminated a drone contract with the military. They're, 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 they're trying to differentiate. They're trying to differentiate. They're trying to be like they still have some bad Apple. Don't get me wrong, but it, you know, but um, you know, so what's happened is Google and Amazon have basically secretly joined forces on the lobbying side and are essentially purposely attacking one another, saying, well, we are in competition with Amazon because Amazon, believe it or not, is one of the biggest search companies now and, and revenue generators because almost every one of us here would argue that if we're trying to buy a product, you're probably going to Amazon to search for it before you're going to Google, right? So they actually are generating a ton of money off of data and search as well. And so Amazon's sitting there saying, well, we don't have the whole market. Look at Google has it. Google's saying, well, not anymore. I mean, you, you used to say we had it, but look how much Amazon has. Look how much... Netflix has when they're searching for films and, and they're all using it to essentially create this whole competition, unquotes, amongst each other that really they stay in their lanes. It doesn't really exist uh, in the way that it's perceived to be. So the airline industry, basically. Yeah, essentially. Exactly right. And uh, so what's interesting, though, is that this has hit antitrust issues like lawsuits over and over and over again. And the way... There's something called the Chicago, you probably know this, Jimmy, I think it's like the Chicago School of Economics. And it's essentially a theory that's existed since like the 1980s. It says, yeah, Friedman's, uh, you know, effort basically says that like today the rationale is as long as consumer pricing is maintained and there's no anti-competitive pricing elements to what these companies are doing, there's no antitrust. 
the problem is, is in a modern day society, they're, they're giving away this stuff, right? They're giving away Gmail. They're giving away Facebook because the data is the commodity to your point. So valuable. Right. And the government officials just have, have, have no understanding. This whole black box, they don't get it. They don't understand (laughs) how much money is derived. There's been term limits. Yeah. There's been talking. (laughs) We need term limits. Um, So what happened though, which was interesting is that I think it was 2012. There was a big antitrust case. There's one in Europe and there's one in the U S and the Europe, Google lost and they paid the largest fine in history in the U.S. They won. And the reason they won in the U.S. is because of that whole prices aren't being fixed. But what's interesting is the, the you know, the FTC was essentially saying, well, the reality is, is, you know, yes, and you talked about this actually with voice and how that might change. But yes, you can search on Amazon for I need a network cable. Whose product is going to yeah. come up first, even though it's price fairly? Amazon's product. Yeah. Right. They're going to sell you their product, right? And is that really an antitrust element just because it's priced aggressively or fairly, right? Is that really fair? Is that search bias or that exists? And it relates it to like, imagine in 10 years if Facebook decides to allow you to open checkings and savings accounts and they exist right there, right? On the top of your Facebook account. And essentially they can displace over time financial institutions and they can start knowing exactly what your bank account they're looks like. Right they're already doing. Apple's, Apple's, and they're Apple's looking at card, expense cards. Apple, so yeah, card. this was written before Apple did that. And so like, she basically was like, that's going to happen. And it's happened. And Facebook, QuickBooks, Square, they're all, they're all even up as you this small business loans, loans based on the transaction. But where it gets scary books. is when Facebook, Amazon, and Google do it is because what they'll know, they know all your habits. So they're going to yeah. start looking at your bank account and looking at all your transactions and how much money you have. And they're going to start offering you products that are priced perfectly within how much money you have, what you've been looking at, and what you've been buying. I read the same and thing about Square. Two together. And this book, Square is going to take over the, uh, the the loan process. So Square knows exactly what you can afford based on every mm-hmm. transaction concept, you've yeah. got. They can just say, hey, if you want a $10,000 loan for 4% because you've already been searching for it, and it'll just be there, and you just get yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but Square's already doing that with micro, with micro. Uh, well, say that again. Yeah. Well, so they take a mic. They take a. They give you money, and then they take a bigger piece of your transaction to pay back the loan. Yeah. yeah. So they know you're doing fifty transactions a month. They can price it right into your transaction cost. Give you the money, and they get it back. Yeah. I mean, it's they're gonna disrupt the banks. Yeah, and and so. You know, there's a chapter here called the urbanization of everything, uberization of everything. It's basically, you know, in here is the concept. They did a really cool case study on, uh, she did a really cool case study on Uber um, and, you know, the incestuous nature that we all know now about Travis Clinic and the Uber growth strategy. But but what it, what it talks about is how essentially, um, you know, these companies are essentially slowly but surely literally taking over everything to it point where it's very feasible to think that five or six companies will literally run the world and forever. Well, look at, look we'll at, never be able to go back. Right? Yeah, look, the fan groups, right? Look, look, at, look at food right now. That's already happened. Yeah, Whole Foods. And what and what it's happening is it's creating more anti-competition because what happened is right after uh, Amazon bought Whole Foods, you saw all these massive conglomerate mergers in that supermarket sector. Because they're like, shit, we can't compete unless we're bigger yeah. than they are. Yeah. Right. And I, I whole, if we're not bigger than Amazon or we're not bigger than Google, we can't compete. So all the mom and pops are essentially just completely getting bought up or shut down. Yeah. And all you're doing is seeing the birth of just mega ports now. And, but I, I actually meant your, your consumer brand in food is actually owned only by like seven or yeah. eight yeah. major yeah. food. Monsanto, like, oh, yeah, yeah. I actually see a landscape. And so like, like to your, 
effectively that's what's going to happen. It's, these tech companies are going to end up owning everything, right? And it's just you know you don't know which one you're working. Same thing happened in the wash industry. If you guys are watching nerds at all, They're, you know more or less like most of those brands are going out of business and they come in and bought up like cars, cars, same thing. Like it's all consolidating, right? Yep. Yeah. And one other thing in here that was pretty crazy to me is like. So Google had this strategy where essentially to like fight off antitrust concepts, right? And the reality is, is they know that most of the government officials to like research it, research it on Google. <laughs> That's the answer, right? Let's be honest. They have 97.9% of the search <laughs> And here's the beauty of it. What are you looking for? <laughs> It's Google. Right. Find no, we are great. So what, so what did Google do? And they got caught for this. So what did Google do? They went and paid somewhere between eight and fifteen thousand dollars for about for tens of thousands of academic research papers to be written, funded by them, and then prioritized them at the Google search. Hmm. Yeah, front page So it's basically, and they created, and they put some in there that's basically like antitrust is real. Antitrust, but they basically created this dynamic to essentially influence the mind of government officials <laughs> to essentially believe that there is enough anti, <laughs> there is enough competitive nature. It's comparative. It's comparative to like ExxonMobil funding research. Yeah, same concept. Um, uh, all the big food companies funding research into sugar and food and things that had Coca Cola fans for sugar. Yeah, research. research. Yeah, that it's, it's just a and there's just examples. This book is just example, yeah, same thing. Yeah. This is literally a cycle repeating itself. Yeah, it, it is. Just happens different, every different time. There are examples of this all throughout here. In fact, one was interesting in the section called The Illusion of Cheap. It was talking about when Amazon actually uh, decided, or sorry, yeah, Amazon decided that um, they had, so Jeff Bezos is quoted as saying um, when they wanted to take on the book business, um, Bezos directed employees to approach these small publishers the way a cheetah would a sickly gazelle. That was his quote. Uh, and he actually called it the gazelle project. <laughs> Pretty strong. Um, but essentially what he did was he, and this is Amazon strategy, right? They essentially deep discounted all the best-selling books that you could possibly find uh, in the ebook market. So essentially people would come and buy on their platform. And they, their concept was, is once you're on our platform, you're hooked on our yeah. platform. Yeah, and they essentially, yeah, they just pushed everybody else out of the market, right? They've done this with every it's their strategy. Well, it's, it's, it's a known strategy. It's their known strategy. Well, it's not just theirs. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's called lost leader is all it is. It's yeah. just they can do it at a massive well, scale. Fulfilled by Amazon. Like, they're, they're, they have a network of people doing that for them. Like, how am I going to make my own business? Well, I have to undercut this guy by a cent. The next guy does it by a cent. Yeah. You're totally it only took 21 months after the Kindle was launched for Amazon to have 90% of the market. Wow. I mean, they are literally going in absolutely. Where'd you get your book? Monopoly. Amazon. Where'd you get your book? Uh, Amazon. <laughs> Where'd you get your book? Audible. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I got mine on Amazon too, baby. I got Kindle and audio. And I could go on for a long time in here about these similar examples and essentially the, the element of how these companies are, are doing this. Predatory. Predatory nature, and they're monopolizing the whole world, and they're forcing other industries and other players to do the same to compete against them. And you're literally finding that the world is moving to a monopolized megacorp world. There's no way around it because we're not slowing them down, right? So it comes back to that question I asked at the very beginning: is like, what could potentially impact change? Like, what could be the change maker? Hipsters. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. 
They brought back local food, organic, like, like, hipsters change everything. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know it's ridiculous to say, but, like, not so much. But, but educated consumers, is, I, I know I was joking, but educated consumers, I think, is a big part of that. I mean, especially the next blog I'm looking at releasing. I'm in the middle of it right now, but vote, vote with your wallet is the title of it right now. But that idea of, like, you have to be somewhat, like, vital farms, right? Pasteurized eggs, I've been eating those for a long time now. Like, once you look at what organic really means, you just kind of laugh. Yeah. Organic's a joke. But see, here's the, and it talks a little about it. Here's the problem, though. It's like, what happens with Vital Farms is bought by Amazon. Yeah, no, I, just, that's the problem. They're, they're so big, they can buy everyone and everything to the point where, like, you may not even know it's owned by them at one point. I, I agree. And you just can't even, like, and honestly, to your point earlier, you're inquisitive, you uh, care. Like, the vast majority of the people, people in the world aren't going to care. They're just going to buy whatever's cheap. I, I I agree. That's the problem. Is like so it comes and what she theorizes it's going to have to come down to probably two things. One, the government is going to have to do something about this. Like they're going to have to. It is going to crush the stock market. It's going to have all these implications. But if you don't bring an antitrust element like they did to the steel industry in the back and some of the finance industry, AT and T with Microsoft, some of the things they did in the back, then you could get to the point where these companies are so powerful there's nothing like that. But they're already. When you say they're already as powerful, the argument is it's pretty, it's pretty close. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. They have so much money and so much power now and influence beyond anything you've ever seen before that it, it's arguable that without government intervention, it could get to a point where you can't stop it. It's very true. I mean, if you really think about it. The, Europe, the Europeans are much further ahead of really looking at this. The U.S. is still pretty active. You're seeing it. But Problem is, a lot of the decision makers have, you know, the money that they get financing and all this, and then you get into a broader conversation, right? Like finance laws, and everything goes down a way different rabbit hole. But you know, the only the kind of the takeaway I had is, um, you know, with this data not only being incredibly wealthy and powerful, uh, creating a consumer amount of wealth and power, especially from the products that we use for free, so we don't really think of it that way is there are ways and apple's actually kind of feeding that effort they're actually coming off they're actually apparently in their next release going to come out with a, a ability to actually turn off all geolocation tracking completely like very easily uh, rather than having to go into each app and all that kind of stuff and do certain things but the reality is is there are ways for us to essentially kind of get some of our privacy back um and that is you can do things like incognito mode uh, you know you can yeah, you can you can not oh, when you go to the cookies not allow it so my advice would be like as you continue to use these products and, and these tools is you know actually take the time to opt out of everything that you have options for on facebook or you know instagram using cognito mode use the features that they do have available to try to reduce the exposure because they're they are weaponizing and using it against us and, and it's going to continue to be incredibly invasive uh, in our lives in a not positive way, like the insurance example over the years. I think the only way to change it quickly is legislation. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. We're out. It's yeah. the antitrust the movement has to do. Yeah. And it's really the only way that it's probably realistically going to have the impact that it needs oh. to have. But how close is the U.S. to doing that? I oh. think they're way further away than so California. California just passed them out here, right? Yeah, now all the, yeah. the states are starting to step up. And GDPR will be probably become the adopted philosophy, but it's still not going to stop people from putting the electors in their home Google devices. And it's still not going to stop all things that we do. GDPR so, actually puts a burden, so does California on smaller businesses. Yeah. Because they don't have the in-house counsel or the in-house <laughs> strength. 
participate in all these data at all. It, what it does too is it empowers you. What uh, you know, my brother probably can talk all day about it, but what it does is it empowers you as a consumer to call and say, hey, you know, airline or hey Google, I want you to remove everything you have about me, and you have to do it legally. Or you don't, you don't, until then, you didn't have that authority to do that because you signed the terms and conditions and the privacy policies. And how many of you have actually ever read one? And how many people actually have read those and could understand that when they do read them? Right? It just doesn't happen. Um, and so this essentially is to say, like, hey, Google, Facebook, we know that nobody reads these and you're taking advantage of consumers and we're going to force that you to give them more rights. The question then becomes, are really people going to enforce those rights and stop using or modify the way they use their products? Probably not. They're probably just going to hit the switch like they ever did with the terms and conditions and move on because the convenience factor is so powerful mm -hmm. um, and I think you know that that element of that is really what kind of when I read this it really concerned me was like can you really break the convenience cycle in human beings at this point in time to the point where it doesn't almost doesn't matter what you do to these companies because we're addicted and to your book right is you know and yours it's like that addiction is so strong now that it may not even matter what anybody does unless individuals and have these types of conversations and make conscious efforts to change their habits. But you'll still be relying on it because that's how we're all connected. Yeah. It's inevitable, right? Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting to really, to understand, uh, you know, and there's a lot of really interesting on how we got where we are and how, you know, a lot of the different, uh, with that back when Bill uh, Clinton was president, some of the policies that were put in place to really allow this to happen. And there's a lot of a lot of legal and government related elements in this book that really tell the story of how we got where we are today. So if you guys were ever interested in kind of understanding how these companies got to where they are with, without really getting broken up or without really having a lot of you know fingers in their in their pie, it's, it's quite interesting. So are they able? Huh? Are they able? You know, it's it's a strong argument, honestly, on both sides of the fence. Um, because they have done some amazing things, right? Um, and they have created a lot of, uh, of products and innovation that really has done a lot. But it also has done things, you know, for, so they give an example of Facebook where, you know, Facebook has created, there's an undeniable element where Facebook has created, you know, a lot of community. It has brought people together. There's, you know, it, has, it has empowered a lot of people who didn't, you know, to come out and talk about issues that maybe they never felt they could with a community of like-minded people. Then you've also got the polar opposite where people are weaponizing that in foreign governments and actually using it, you know, for revolutionary purposes right. in a negative perspective and, and targeting people and, and things like government intervention with our elections and things like that. So they, the, what was well, the crazy, not the crazy part, but what the interesting thing was is the tech companies position themselves as we're not evil, the people that use our platforms are people. People use our Yeah. You know, we're just providing a service and people use it how they want to do it. And it's not us. We're just the creators of the service. And so it really comes down to, do you believe that they have a moral and fiduciary obligation to protect the people from themselves or do they not? And it's up to people. If people are evil, people are evil. And if people want to misuse it, then they're just the conduit to do it. But should they really be responsible for stopping them? It's not really, is that really their, their place? So the example you gave earlier regarding the sun and the room smoking, I heard earlier earlier today where you said that you'll start getting scored based on people you hang out with. Yeah. So for example, if you go skydiving tomorrow, you know we work together, the potential that I might go skydiving too, I'll get scored. I'll get scored on that. Inappropriately yeah. based on my network too. Yeah. Social credit. 
Yep, yeah, well, there's an yeah, episode of Black Mirror. I think China does it. China does it. There's an episode of Black Mirror. It's called like Stoical something, but it's essentially where essentially credit scores are replaced by your social profile. China's doing it. If you get like a DUI, they don't get trouble. Or if your friend gets a DUI, now you're, you know, by association. You're by association. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. It's crazy. So I had Kai Kunami's book, the one it's called Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, New World Order. Hit, the content hit a lot of um, similar topics that we talked about regarding AI. But the one I started this week, I think, is better from a company perspective. And so it's uh, called The Future Arise Faster Than You Think. It's Diamandis, Benjamin, and Stephen Copper. But I think as a group, something that we should maybe consider paying more attention to, and I really like the way we position it, is that these are these individual technologies, but the convergence of technology. And so how can we as a company take advantage of that Artificial intelligence, geolocation, IIoT, computational space. So um, I'm about halfway through the book right now, but the focus of, okay, so we know all these technologies that exist. We're not going to stop using Google. We're not going to stop using AI. What can we do as a company to see opportunity, to your point, you know, Bush's point, as far as convergence now? So if we're out in the field and we see certain things, opportunities, where you know what, you know, this AD plant could be better with sensors. Well, from a data perspective, we're building a data course right now, what can we do to essentially create a machine learning for us to eventually, let's say in five years, have the opportunity to be the leader in this particular space that they may be using artificial intelligence. But I think that using the, gen the genome, for example, being able to sequence DNA, all these different things that we're talking about that perhaps are infringing on our lives, using that opportunistic standpoint, saying, okay, these are coming together. So for example, the cell phone is converted to Calculator, yeah. phone, camera, yeah. GPS, etc., etc. What can we do conscientiously to say, you know what, this is how we're going to lead in this industry by converging to this industry that we're participating in. So, you know, I read that one, AI took power, but I figured convergence is more important for us in this stage of the game. So, did you have any, when you were reading this, did it spark any ideas from what you know? You know, about the, one, the, the one from yesterday with uh, yeah, that, that's the one I'm, I really feel like. We have a strong faith in that. You know, you and I talked about sometimes putting, you know, I don't know what these plants, these plants look like on the ground, mm -hmm. but I really feel like there's this whole movement from analog to digitization, from the deep of everyone digitization. Mm -hmm. And so what in these plants, what in these projects that we're doing, can we bring to the table, you know what, we see an opportunity to digitize this, create maybe a knock or operation center, where is it one of our people, one of the people at the funds, one of the people, one of our developers being able to digitize and then us being able to bring these ideas to the fund. We say, you know what, we've done this, we've researched this, this may be something that, you know, your project might need going forward. How do we position ourselves as the expert yeah. in that space? So from that perspective. I had a, uh, when I was talking to P yesterday, I had kind of a variation of that, which is there are companies like his that are like starting to figure that out. In fact, we were on the today, they mentioned that they got approached by an AI company, infrastructure, infrastructure operations. So, it's called Industry 4.0. Right? Yeah, so the company, the whole companies time. are starting to figure it out, but where they where they marry up well with what we have to offer, in my opinion, it's almost like we combine talents, which is that they can bring the sensors and the technology and everything to get all the readings and analyze all the data, but they don't know what to do with it. They're not right. operations folks. They don't know how to say, oh, to your point on an AD facility, hey, I captured the moisture content here and I captured the yeah. volatile solids, the NPK and all this stuff, and I've aggregated it to the cloud and I've got this great BI tool. 
But how do you take that data with our knowledge of, well, you need to add you know, 15 gallons of nitroglycerin because your acidity levels are low or whatever that is. It's that piece that will inevitably be the human element for now that's missing that I think we can bring to the table because we understand the actual, that side of the house to partner with those types of companies and say, you guys do this piece and we'll do the analytics piece on how to actually yeah. take that information that you guys have figured out how to capture and bring together from a machine learning based perspective and actually apply it to a solution that they might need. And quite frankly, most of the control system vendors, they have Bradley's, the Emerson's, they're all doing a version of that right yeah. now with, you know, their endpoint based yeah. sensors. So, and then, you know, the developers and the programmers are writing the interlocks. And yeah. Creating some of that, but that's still a human element. It's really hard. Really trying to level it up a little bit. When you start talking about organics, it's really where the database is always evolving. And there's no real, always one answer that can be. There's a human element to knowing. Well, it's like a moisture sensor, right? Like on a conveyor and being able to throttle something downstream in the plant. Like that's happening right now. We know that's happening. Yeah. I think this database that Brian's working on right now, we've got to be stuff. I mean, if we get a really robust data set, I think there's no reason why we can't. Like some kind of algorithm for it, mm-hmm. you know, from a geographic standpoint, what works better from a feedstock perspective or from optics perspective. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what do we look like in five years as from an information company too, not just an engineering company? Yeah. So, I agree with that. I think sometimes, especially right now, we're in the land of uh, AI machine learning bubble where everything needs to be on a blockchain, or, and I just think sometimes that's over. I think the key there is. Is data organization, data structure, being able to leverage that data with the human element. It's, I still believe in that. I mean, even. I totally agree. I'll make it right now. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's so. like, you know, the idea of everything, like my pizza needs to be on a blockchain. Yes. Like, no, all right, I, I, I really don't care if I got a token well, out there on my pizza. I'd like back to up as well when you're going to, it's the bubble, the bubbles are right where because you're going to get to the point where things push and push and push and they fail. So yeah. those failures are going to be what strengthens strengthen everything as a whole. Yeah. But I, I do think with data is the new currency. I, I mean, I, I, we have, as a company, I think we subscribe to that, right? Right. Yeah. So continuously looking at those data points and, opportunity. and, and figuring out how do you consolidate these 75 Excel files into one database? So architecting that database. I mean, the fact that we have in-house development is a good point on how we, coming to your point, how we as a company, I think it's continuing to leverage that passion for technology that we have as a company specifically around the data that we have collected over the years and continue to be forward thinking there. Yeah, I think if anything, we realize from all these books that technology is happening, the revolution is happening whether we like it or not. Whether we're good or evil right. or, or positive or negative or it's fast or slow, already is, is, the, yeah, is the elements of the conversation that you can debate and how fast and where and when and all that. But at the end of the day, like, be foolish to not brace it. Right. I mean, a lot of those like big data companies, quite frankly, garbage in, garbage out, right? Right, that's exactly. Fail, right? right? Yeah. Because yep. they come in, they like sell you on this on this data set that's perfect, right? Like in a in a controlled environment, then you come into a messy data, right? Mm-hmm. So I still think what we're trying to do, focus on moving through a proof of concept in Excel, the best database in the world, right? To then something like and SQL and then layering it in and then yeah, building it up. The way, right. And then once you really got that core base, I think you could think about alternatives. But I just worry sometimes right now with especially my tech passion for tech, like, you know, if we just implemented AI machine learning, you know, on industrial facilities yeah. out the gates, you know, that's gonna revolutionize this it's industry 4.0, right? To yeah. a certain degree. It's like yeah, maybe. No, not really. You know, we, we need a little bit of time. We need to 
focus on what the data is telling us to your point look at it and yeah it's a marathon right so gate said right don't people overestimate what they can do if you're underestimating what 10 years is like right yeah <laughs> so five years out what do we look like from that perspective yeah. how much information have we collected over five years and then we become that you know back go to right? okay yes we provide engineering services but it's an additional two we're also an information company yeah, yeah. that's happening yeah. we are we're definitely going to be an information company yeah, I mean, if anything I learned here is how powerful and wealth data creates is we have a lot of it, we're gaining more of it, and I think the project plan causes how to reorganize and structure it such that we can weaponize it from the perspective of it's valuable to us to our clients. Specialized data. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know that happens in the front when you get a tiny collaboration. Yeah. That also brings up an internal need for a CIO, so Chief Information Officer position, and the importance of a kind of a privacy officer, and one of the other comments from our book was, in 10 years, any company doesn't have a, a privacy officer on their boards can fail. Yeah, I have a suggestion. I have a neighbor that's uh, on a board of some other companies that I talked to. I talked to you briefly about it. That has some contacts that do cybersecurity for plants and um, and work on data systems. Actually, the more we talk, I mean, the more I think that you know, good on Jacobs. Yeah, honestly, I mean, they bought a cybersecurity company. They they actually have a pretty interesting. I mean, I guess the more you really want to know about just talk to mm -hmm. dudes at the forefront of this, mm -hmm. right? The data privacy and cybersecurity running it the world's largest. Just the, the overwhelming nature of, to your guys' point, like everybody gets hacked and then they create a new system and just gets hacked again. It's not going to stop. Yeah. No. I feel I actually empathize for him because I'm like, your job is never going to end. No. Every, I mean, you've, you've seen it, you know, and I was in Lubbock this weekend and like probably six different times it's like, oh, this happened and that happened. And he's all I gotta get on the call because so and so is hacked and the CEO at and their child point over here and this guy, and it's just it never ends. It never ends. I keep pointing back to my book, but the, the guy said one the one question he keeps getting asked is by uh, people just leaving high school. It's like, what should I do for my career? They yes. said every single time the answer is cybersecurity. Yeah. Software engineering, cybersecurity. He said you're you're set up for yes. Yeah, uh, he said that's there's, there's one. Maybe we're missing. Them. Maybe we should start actually layering in a cybersecurity slash data privacy practice within Nexus and start thinking of ourselves as Deloitte. So one I mean, well, I mean, that's, that's, that was my comment on Jacobs, yeah. right? I mean, why don't we they bought us? Don't tell us we want to start him up in, in our company and let him build a practice. Yeah, and start thinking built broader. I mean, plants <laughs> need it. All right? the plants you're working on, I mean, that should be added to that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Scope to service. Yeah, to the right. Yeah. I mean. I was with them for two hours this morning. It's the same concept. They were an insurance company, so they're everything. Mm -hmm. Because they realize that they could be an everything company that because it's all tied together. Mm -hmm. But the, the like the hacking power plants as we wrote that is happening already. Yeah. Yeah. It's like people are finding a Ramco got hacked. That was an example. That was an example in there. Ramco got a third of the yeah. Yeah, Ramco had forty thousand they had to physically replace every connected uh, computer. It's like forty five thousand laptops. I was nuts. Like did we used to have an outage talk? Northeast a few years ago, just because of some kind of hacking. Oh, really? Is that the one in New York that took out the Canada and New York? Yeah, there was actually a part in here that basically said every country already has access to shut down the infrastructure of pretty much every other mm -hmm. predominant country, but no one would ever do it because it would ruin their own country. Yeah, because we're so global. It's like nuclear weapons. You take down the West, China's taking down nuclear destruction. Right? Yeah, it's, this, it's, it's essentially generations. Globalization global. is so powerful now yeah. that if you shut down one, you essentially shut down well, all. To your kind point, things are getting better because we have to rely on each other. Globalization yeah. is forced. Another world war would literally Absolutely. shut down the global economy. Mm -hmm. 
it's not like we're isolated anymore, yeah. right? If we went into another world war, it would shut the world down. world war would be cyber, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, now yeah. it would be. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, but you're right. I mean, you shut down China, and there goes like half. World War Three is going to be a video game. Economy. I mean, it's crazy to think about, um, but it's going to be a so, video game. So um, I read something saying that we're already in it. We just don't know yet. Yeah, we just don't know yet. Yeah, we're already possibly in World War Three. It's just not the bombs and everything we saw. Yeah. It's like Trump's, Trump's initiatives are all economic war, aren't they? It's like, I don't need to bomb Iran, I'll, I'll crypto economy. Yeah. I don't need to bomb Turkey, I'll crypto their economy. It's terror, economic so. warfare. It's terrifying. It's <laughs> work. Bombs. Yeah, yeah. There's elements of World War II where that's exactly what they did. They tried right. to starve people by cutting off their rations. It was an element. Yeah. Supply, right. Right. yeah. supply chain disruption well, was the biggest part of it. When it was bombs and guns, you would take out all of the, the local infrastructure. Right? You would take out the power. Yeah, weapons, out all of the weapons are only as good as you can put ammo. Sure, right, and if you shut off the supply chain, then they're just there. Yeah, yeah right. So, so it's just a different way to do it. I think adding security to something to do is a great idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. And we have the resources and connections to probably make that a consideration. Maybe today's not the right day, but I think we should be putting it on tomorrow's our tomorrow's start. Tomorrow's <laughs> tomorrow's habit. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're on yeah, tomorrow. Two hacks of the weekend. <laughs> so um we should probably conclude these two with what do we want to make for February's topic. Yeah, I like that. It's a good one. Kind of set the framework for the next one. I had some ideas, but I, I created this one, so I'll give everybody else any other ideas. I know you well, want to read the sleep book. Oh, that was it. Um, like maybe uh, like like opti like optimizing ourselves or something yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, conceptual. Yeah, that's what uh, I was thinking. And I was going right. to go do a sleep book. So, Court, company so you know, we should probably tell each other our books as well. <laughs> just so this doesn't so I really did thought there was no chance that somebody was going to read the same book, but it happened. Yeah, that was pretty the funny. And we didn't even, we didn't <laughs> even, <laughs> like we talked about it today. That was the first In time the car, I was telling so a story funny. from my book. And <laughs> he was like, huh. Oh, he was like, oh, that exact same thing was covered in my book. I was like, what book did you read? Uh, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I mean, another one that I, I would like to do at some point is, is we have self-improvement, but more like corporate culture. Mm -hmm. And you could pull us. I think we can pull together. us together. That's a little well, bit we need a topic every month, though. That's so. what I'm <laughs> I don't know about what I'm writing about. What I'm writing, but it's essentially like how can you take the self-improvement element and apply it to business practices, right? So you talk about sleep. Like how do we put sleep policies in place in our company where we make sure our employees sleep, like getting enough sleep or chapter of the book basically in the very beginning is like he finishes the first chapter he's like or the introduction he's like uh, and if you fall asleep reading this i will be the only author that's ever said thank god for that <laughs> he's like encouraging it matt walker right? yeah matt walker it's, he's, 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 he's authored by uh, on audible by a british british guy he will make you sleep yeah he is yeah there's ted talks and there's all sorts yeah, of video versions but 
That sounds good. Cool. Does everybody want to like just if anybody reads the same book, so be it, or do we want to actually like submit the books to me and I'll make sure no one's reading the same one? I thought it was kind of fun actually. Yeah, I don't. It was kind of. It was interesting to hear someone else's point of view on like that same chapter and just like you know, for me, the way I digest it. Yeah, well, that's just if you read. Yeah, if we read the same book, we. I I thought it played well actually. Yeah, self improvement from the perspective of how do you improve yourself or your employees' lives for the and how do you bring business policies, procedures, and impacts to actually force them, like sleep, like vacations, like how do you actually create a culture in your business that actually... So present your book with an end with an idea of how the company can get better. Exactly. So whatever you, you read, you, you can you present learn, it, however, whatever how you, you learn. How do you apply that to your that, the, the last comment is like, how did you apply that to Nexus? Yeah. yeah. That's the goal of the presentation. Yeah. Well. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.